Let's turn to the New Testament, particularly in Hebrews chapter 11. Today, as we look at two fathers in the faith, Noah and Abraham, and I've already been asked, uh, speaking of life in Northeast Ohio, the title of the message is Walking by Faith, and there are many today in Northeast Ohio walking by faith. I don't know if you know, in the cradle of the SEC here, there's a, a sports league called the National Basketball Association. Um, and the Cleveland Cavaliers are in game seven tonight, uh, and a lot of people walking by faith today. But far more important, far more important, more pressing, much more real and significant is the word of God and to be in God's house and to worship him. Of all the things that were true of these ancient people here in Hebrews 11, of all the things that might have been written, about their lives. The one unifying characteristic that finds them here in this portrait gallery, this hall of faith, we might call it, is their faith in the one true God. All the men and women in this chapter had nothing to go on, nothing to go on, but the promises of Almighty God. They took God at His word and they lived their lives accordingly. They trusted what God said and By doing so, they made a radical impact on their day. It's true whenever a person or a family or a church is prepared to take God at his word and do what he says, they will have an impact on their generation. As Pastor Wheat began last week and talked about the nature of faith, of Abel and Enoch, so today do we continue in this roll call of faith with Noah and Abraham. Indeed, our entire chapter is going to be leading us to a crescendo in chapter 12 that ends with the author and the perfecter of our faith, the pioneer, the Lord Jesus Christ. These men and women here were brought into the company of the redeemed by the prospect of what Christ would achieve. And we who are united by faith have been brought into the company of the redeemed by what Christ has already achieved. So what do these folks have to do with you and me? They lived a long time ago and in a place far away from here. So let's dive in. And as we do, let's look to our Father in heaven once again in prayer. Father, we do pray that you would be our teacher, that you would be our guide. This is your word and we know it has the words of eternal life. We pray that you would meet with us, that you would send your Holy Spirit Christ, that you would be preeminent, that we would see you, and that we would hunger after you and not come away thinking that we need to be like any of these people, only in so much as they modeled your faithfulness and your love and your grace. We pray it all in your matchless name. Amen. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 7. By faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, 
whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sands by the seashore. Now, when we remember Noah today, what do we think of? We typically think of the ark. We think of animals coming two by two into the ark. And in Sunday school, we have all kinds of great felt boards, and it makes a wonderful children's story to educate children about life and animals and about what God did. But here in Hebrews 11, it's his faith for which he's remembered. Noah is an outstanding example of what verse 1 in chapter 11 says concerning faith. Faith is certainty of what we do not see. And the story of Noah is found back in Genesis, chapter 6 through 9. And the kind of faith that Noah exhibited is the kind of faith that literally caused him and required him to stand alone in a generation. I find great encouragement in this story because what God demanded of Noah was far greater. It's far greater and also more difficult than what God asks of you or me today. Let me explain. God required Noah to believe in something that had never happened before. Something that was unlikely and something that was totally unprecedented. But God asked us to believe in things that have already happened. Namely the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Things not hidden, not in the dark, not in the corner of history, but out in the open and recorded in the Bible. Hebrews 11.7 tells us two things that prove Noah's faith. Firstly, his reverential fear. And secondly, his faith in action. So with Noah, we see reverent fear and faith in action. Philip Hughes calls Noah's attitude and his posture of fear as taking heed with careful attentiveness. Noah, we're told, had reverence for God, which led to his attentive care of details of what God commanded. Now, many people today in our own generation think of attentiveness to God's commands as being an attitude of the Pharisees. Pharisees were those who made life difficult not with their biblical obedience, but with their man-made restrictions. Rick Phillips writes, Biblical obedience doesn't make us narrow-minded or uptight. It actually liberates us to what is good and to what is true. And rather than shrinking us, obeying the Bible, obeying God's word, makes us grow. Back in Genesis 6, God looked out over the entire earth and he saw the evil and the corruption that was going around. And he said, that's enough. He's going to make an end of it. But in one man, God found favor. This man, Noah. It's important to remember that. Because God did not find favor in Noah because of Noah's obedience. But his obedience to what God commanded flowed out of the fact that God had already graciously declared him righteous. And we see that God is concerned for the salvation of this particular household. And the story unfolds of God warning Noah that a flood was coming, despite not a drop of rain, 
Not a cloud in the sky in the desert. Despite all evidence to the contrary, Noah responds with faith. God says, Noah, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take some wood and build it and such, and 30 cubits here and 30 cubits there. And Noah gets to work. Noah invests everything he had in that boat. He puts his life and his family into it. And you can see Noah working on the ark, can't you? 120 years. 120 years Noah is building this ark. And the scripture calls him a preacher of righteousness. And that by this act of walking by faith in building the ark, our text says he condemned the world. Now what does that mean? You see, every time Noah got up and got to work, we can also picture everyone passing him by. And what are they saying? They're saying, uh, as they're walking past him, or all the talk in the coffee shop, laughing and mocking, Noah's lost his marbles. Noah, are you crazy? God's going to do what? We're in the middle of the desert, man. Are you serious? It's going to rain? What's this guy had for breakfast? Man, oh man, what are they going to think of next? But Noah said in response, Guys, I've got to tell you, it's appointed once unto man to die, and then the judgment, and it's coming. God's going to flood the world. But if you will plan on getting yourself through that door there, that door into the ark, then when the flood comes, you'll be saved. You'll be spared. Now, where in the world did he come up with that? Well, God told him. Nobody preaches like that unless God tells a person. God said to Noah, tell people about my salvation. It's appointed unto man once unto die and then the judgment. Eternity is a long time. It's forever. And we will either spend it with Christ or in hell. And the good news of the gospel is that God is rich in mercy. And he's made a way for all who will humble themselves and come to the place of freedom and forgiveness and safety. But if you would rather stay where you are, you'll die in your sins. And the crowds then, as they do today, say, who does this guy think he is saying all this stuff? Where did he come up with it? But Noah took God at his word. And so do we. Because for 120 years, God has his man say, you don't have to do this. It doesn't have to end like this. You don't have to die. You and your family can be spared. But the people said, I'm not going in that crummy ark, that simple ark. I've seen the guy building it. Elijah said to Naaman in the Old Testament, if you want to be healed, Naaman, go dip yourself in the Jordan. And Naaman said, are you crazy? Don't you know who I am? I'm not doing that. Don't you know where I went to school? Don't you know what I do for a living? Don't you know how important I am? But the truth is, all of us, all of us, if we're going to be spared the coming judgment, we all have to bow. We all have to come on our knees and go through the door of another structure made with wood, the cross. Because to remain in unbelief, 
to trust in our own resources, to trust in our own power, and to refuse God's free offer of grace and mercy in Christ. To do all of that, you don't have to do anything else scandalous. You don't have to do anything else uh, that would break you down by society standards. All you have to do is say, no, I'm not coming. No, I won't humble myself. And that's enough to destroy you forever. And when we walk out of this sanctuary this morning, what door, metaphorically speaking, do we walk out of? Do we walk through the door of the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Are we walking through the door of our own works, of our own merit, of our own righteousness, what the Bible says are like filthy rags? Noah believed God. He feared God. He obeyed. And he was saved. The crowds disbelieved. They mocked. They disobeyed. And so they perished. Jesus said in Matthew 24, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Second Peter 3 is the same picture. By God's word, the earth was formed. And by the same word, the present heavens are being kept. There's going to be a flood. There's going to be a judgment. And yet the Lord is not slow in keeping His promises. Have you ever wondered... Why the flood didn't, why it didn't start raining on day two? We often marvel at Noah's obedience for 120 years. That's longer than most any of us will ever live. But for 120 years, not a drop of rain, not a cloud in the sky, and Noah still goes to work. And all he had to go on, all he had to go on was God's promises that it's coming, that it's going to happen. But 120 years was also an opportunity for people to come, for people to repent, for people to listen and obey God. God's patient with us. He desires repentance. And those who do not come in repentance do so by sticking their fingers in their ears or by putting their hands over their eyes and running out in unbelief. Choose this day whom you will serve. It's interesting to consider as well that we think about the impact of Noah's ministry in his own day. Part of it was his preaching. But even more so was his obedience. It was really the way he responded to what God had said that made the difference. Again, verse 1 says, or of chapter 11, Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Noah's ark was evidence that pointed to the flood long before it started to rain. It's a classic demonstration of the relationship between faith and works in the Christian life. Why did Noah build the ark? What caused him to act? It was his faith. By faith, Noah built. If Noah didn't believe and trust in God, then what's he doing for 120 years? Jesus said, If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. He doesn't say, if you love me, just lay back and live however you want. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But let me ask it in a different way. What if Noah hadn't built the ark at all? What would we say about his faith then? 
Imagine him saying, well, of course I believe in God. Of course I trust in him. I found favor in his sight. I'm loved. What's the point of having to... God's not serious. He doesn't really want us to listen to him. He doesn't really mean that we have to obey. Quit being so narrow-minded. Quit being like a Pharisee. I'm a believer. He he already loves me. I don't have to follow through on what he's commanded. God's a God of forgiveness. He's really not going to let me perish in the flood. What kind of faith is that? James would call it dead and useless. But Noah did believe. And therefore he chopped down trees and he made plans and he followed God's diagrams and he took a century and a quarter to build in dry heat. And the same is true for us. One commentator has said, If we trust that it is necessary to repent and believe the gospel to be saved, we will flee temptation and at least begin chopping at the trees of our sinful habits and build our faith. It took Noah a while, and it will take us a while for our sanctification too. There's lots of splinters as we build. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is with us. That Jesus has begun and will complete what he began in us. And it's a good work of God's grace, lest any man should boast. And so our Christian obedience then is one of the most decisive influences for non-believers to commit to Christ. The crowds in Noah's day might be saying to themselves, what is Noah saying? Well, I don't know what he's saying. But whatever it is, it must be important because every day Noah gets up and he goes out there and he gets to work. He's got nothing to go on except what his God told him. And he's building his life on it. That's walking by faith. Is that our faith? Another writer says everything Noah did was calculated by God to save. He acted as an instrument of salvation. He is an ambassador of grace. And that's what we are too as Christians. We're ambassadors of grace. And the text says he became an, an heir and won the righteousness that comes by faith as an inheritance. An inheritance is not something you earn. It's something you're given. You don't do anything to earn an inheritance, but it's gifted to you. Secondly, we see Abraham in this text. With Abraham, we see him exhibiting faith in two ways. A faith that moves and a faith that waits. Now, Abraham, as well as Noah, exhibits faith that acts in response to God's call. It's important to remember from back in Genesis that Abraham was not picked because he was a good man. He was not seeking God. Abraham was a a pagan. He was an idol worshiper when God meets him in Genesis chapter 12. And Abraham was simply saved and declared righteous because God sought him. He's called in Romans the father of all who have faith. And he's the ultimate expression in the Old Testament of what it looks like to walk with God. To walk by faith. To be a friend of God. He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And there's three incidents that are here listed in Hebrews 11 that prove the point. Verse 8 calls us back to Genesis 12. When Abraham, who's minding his own business, receives a call from God to get up and go. To leave your country, to leave your people, to leave your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. 
Time to get going. Blessings and promises will come. And remarkably, in verse 4 of Genesis 12, the text just simply states, And Abraham went. Now this is remarkable. Because God said to him, Leave everything that represents security to you. I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your people. I want you to leave your family. Now what if God asked that of you? What if God came to you and moved you to go? Some of us are surrounded by what we feel comfortable and what represents security and safety to us. But God comes and says, now I want you to go and incidentally, where you are going is not as important as that you get going. Get moving. And Abraham left. Now why would anybody do that? In their right mind. He had nothing to go on except the command of God and the accompanying promises of God. And for Abraham, that was enough. That's faith in every day and in every generation. The command of God and the accompanying promises as well as the presence of God. And therefore, we respond in obedience. The callings of God in the scriptures seldom leave a person where they already are. You don't get to stay in one place. Now, I'm not talking about geography here. We're talking about his calling to each and every one of us. If God says go and we say no, I'm staying put. Then in reality, we're not staying put at all. We're backwards. It's a step backwards. Abraham is faith on the move because he makes a departure and simultaneously he also makes a great discovery. He is going to discover that the only place to be is where God wants you to be. The only ideal situation is the place where God has set you down. So Abraham says, fine, I'll go. We should marvel at his faith and obedience. At the beginning of of his journey, Abraham, like most of us, has no clue and cannot handle any awareness of all that's going to happen to him along this journey. All that will be required of him. All that will test his faith and all that he will endure and suffer along the way. And if he did, he might have given up. And we might too, as well as all the wonders that he's going to receive along this journey of faith. And this is good news, because despite our hunger and our desire and our obsession to know what's going to come next in our life, God in his mercy and kindness doesn't tell us. Because it's not as important as it is our faith and trust and our obedience to his call, that we walk with him. That we walk with Him, that we have life with Him, that He feeds us and nourishes us and loves us. He is our security. He is our safety. It doesn't matter what's facing you tomorrow. I know it's important, but ultimately and eternally, it's not as important as the fact that your Heavenly Father loves you and is going with you. That He has sent you. Abraham was one of the wealthiest men of his time. And God made him a nomad. 
He was a tent dweller who lived as a foreigner. Nomads didn't know what a foundation or what stability looks like because they're always on the move. And Abraham accepted that. He says, I'll go from tent to tent now because I'm looking at a city whose foundation is, is secure, whose design and whose builder is God himself. And so by faith, Abraham lived in the land that was not yet his own. He lived on the promise because he had not yet received the reality. By the way, the only land that Abraham eventually owns in his earthly life is his burial ground. God promised him all the land of Canaan and the descendants as numerous as the stars in heaven. But all he ended up owning in his earthly life is the place where he was buried. And as much as we would love to put down roots, as much as we would love to feel secure and comfortable, as much as we would love the world to love us and call this home, it's not. We do not find our comforts here, not because we're called to be hermits or to be monks or difficult people who never engage in the culture around us. Exactly the opposite. But we can engage the culture and the world around us because this isn't our home. Because we're citizens of a heavenly city. Our permanent home is elsewhere. And we as Christians have a growing homesickness for the place we belong. The great Puritan preacher Jeremiah Burroughs writes in the rare jewel of Christian contentment. He says, the scripture tells us plainly that we must behave here as pilgrims and strangers. So do not think to satisfy yourself here. So let us not be troubled when we see that other men have great wealth, but we have not. Why? We are going away to another country. You are, as it were, only lodging here for a night. If you were to live a hundred years in comparison to eternity, it is not as much as a night. It's as though you were traveling and had come to an inn. The Bible uses this imagery of being pilgrims, of being tent dwellers, of being nomads. And we love the world in the sense that Christ loved the world, but this is not our home. We want to be Christ to the world around us. We want to seek the welfare of our city, not because it deserves it or not because we're fixating uh, our eyes on something that is the kingdom itself, but because that's what we're testifying to. We're saying the good news of Jesus Christ has come. We have been loved and so we are loving and seeking the good of those around us, but it's not our home. You know, outside the Bible... History records very little of Abraham. He was of no appeal to the world. He was not a mighty king or a warrior. He was not a famous entertainer nor an evil villain, that which typically catches the eyes of the world. And so too, as we lead quiet and godly lives, we're not going to interest the world around us that much either, except, except, For the joy and the love and the obedience to Christ, which seems otherwise unfathomable. What's he doing? He's building an ark. Are you crazy? You're leaving your home and your family and your people? What are you doing out here? You're on a mission trip? Why would you fly halfway around the world to help these nobodies? 
What are you doing? It's not going to be our achievements. The world is not that easily impressed by anything that we think they're going to be impressed by. The Christian life is not living on the edge or being wild at heart. It's about daily living and loving Christ. Daily living and loving your family. Daily living and loving your neighbor. Daily living and working well in whatever your vocation is. The Christian life is not an extended mountaintop of all these great joys and highs. So that if you're not experiencing those, if you're undergoing trials and temptations and droughts in your life, that somehow something is wrong, or that God is not there, or that you can't make a difference. What does Jesus says when it comes to the topic of giving? It's the widow's might. Rather than the millionaire's check that pleases God. Because it's not about the dollar amount. It's about the attitude and the heart and the faith and the life exhibited. It won't be our talent or our accomplishments that win the world. It's our Christian obedience which causes those around us to say, Hey, what do you know that I should know? You have a joy, you have a peace, you have a contentment, you have a rest that I don't have. You've got to tell me about it. Where'd you get that? Look at how they love each other. I want that in my life too. And we can imagine how many times Abraham looked out from the flaps of his tent at some city or some settlement in the hills of the land. He must have been tempted. He must have longed for such comforts to settle down, to live in peace, and to rest. But our text tells us plainly that by faith he lifted up his eyes upward to a better if yet distant city, to a city far surpassing anything seen by his own eyes, a city with a foundation, not a tent peg, designed and built not by Canaanite kings, but by the Lord of heaven. And if we too are going to persevere, if we too along our journey of faith are going to make it home, then we're going to need to fix our eyes on that same great city that is foretold in Revelation 21 and 22, where there's not even the need for a sun or the moon, for the glory of God shines brightest. And there's no more pain, there's no more death, there are no more tears, because sin has passed away. And we will be at home forever. This life is but a blink. It's a vapor. And then eternity forever. Lastly, Abraham's faith is a faith in waiting. Verse 11 talks about Sarah giving birth to Isaac, the child of the covenant promise, pointing us back to Genesis chapter 17. And in Genesis 17, God comes to Abraham and says, Okay, Abraham... You're 99 years old now, and the clock and the timeline is going right according to plan. Things are moving along nicely, and you're about to become a dad. And Abraham asks some good questions, honestly. He says, "Um, really? And he laughs. He laughs the laughter, not like Sarah or one of rebellion. But he laughs the laughter of someone who knows it's too good to be true. It's a... Okay, God, how wonderful, how amazing. Man, look at me. 
Look at her. Look at us. But if you say so, God, 24 years had gone by since Genesis 12 and the initial promise to get up and go. And Abraham said, that's fine. The time and the window to bear children had passed, but they believed the promise. And each year that time had passed, after 24 years, each year as they went from their mid-70s to their mid-80s to their mid-90s, as if their mid-70s weren't enough, but each year that passed, the likelihood of that promise being fulfilled in an earthly sense had also passed. Yet they took God at his word. Romans 4, 20 and 21 says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. God had the power to do what he had promised. You see, for Abraham, this was not a blind leap into the dark. But it was based on the clear promises of God. Our Lord Jesus says, look, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't fear. I'm going away and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, then I'm coming back to get you. So that where I am, you may be also. And therefore we take him at his word. Jesus is coming personally. He's coming visibly. And how do we know that? Because he said so in his word. We take him at his word. It's as sure as the promise that went to Abraham that we will be with him forever. That heaven is our home. Yes, Abraham was 99 and Sarah was old and barren. But God had his reasons for the delay. God always has reason for his delays. Just because we don't see it or can't understand it, doesn't mean that what is happening isn't on purpose. And God wanted it to be clear that the only possible explanation for the birth of Isaac to two people almost a 100 years old was the miraculous intervention and initiatory grace of Almighty God. And the gift of the Son, from whom His own eternally begotten Son would one day be born, was the result of that promise. And essential to Abraham's faith, his ability to keep going despite God's hold on, is found in verse 1 of chapter 17 in Genesis. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, if you went to Genesis 17, uh, you might notice in a notation in your Bible, it says that in Hebrew... God reveals himself as El Shaddai. In English, the translation says, I am God Almighty. But in Hebrew, it's El Shaddai. Abraham, how can we be sure that this child is coming? Abraham said, well, we can be sure. Because God has said, I'm El Shaddai. In Hebrew, El means God. Shah means who. And Dai means sufficient. God was saying, I am God who is sufficient. I am God who is able to do everything. I am the God who is sufficient. That's how we can know. That's why we can trust. And that's why Hebrews 11 verse 12 ends, Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. In closing, those 
here in Hebrews 11 are here for our encouragement. They're here for us to derive strength, not because we're called to be like Noah or Abraham. The Bible only ever calls us to be like Christ. And so we ask ourselves the question in our own time and in our own lives, what does it take to please God? What does it take to live the Christian life? What is it that we're living for? Is it good works? Is it donations? Is it regular church attendance? Is it having it all? Is it being it all? And as important as all of those may be, from the very beginning in Genesis to the very end of Revelation, the Bible tells us what pleases God is faith. The faith of a child trusting his father, his parent. A faith that moves us to have the same reverential fear and faith in action as Noah. The same trust along the journey in motion as Abraham. And the same faith in waiting and patience as a hundred-year-old couple waiting for the promises of God to be realized. That is what it looks like to walk by faith. And I pray that all of us will be encouraged and strengthened. That each of us, as we walk by faith, we walk looking forward to that city whose foundation, whose design, whose dwelling is manufactured and is waiting for us by Almighty God. We will all sit down at a marriage supper. We're heading to a wedding feast of joy and eternal life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Hebrews and your activity in the life of these men and women, of Noah and Abraham and Sarah and countless others. We thank you for the work in our own lives, and the lives of those around us. We thank you for your goodness to us and your grace. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would daily die more and more to self and to our sin, and more and more be made alive to Christ's righteousness, that we would see him and him alone, that we would not trust in ourselves, but we would trust in your word. Help us to be good stewards of it. Help us to live by faith, we pray in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.